come back together this morning, we continue to look at Acts chapter 1, and uh, we are looking at the verses 42 through 47. As uh, many of you know, our sort of outline for CVP, uh, the quick uh, explanation of what we desire to embody uh, is taken largely from this text. When we talk about open hearts, open hands, open doors, we are unpacking in this text what we see as being early indications of how the community of faith gathered together, the people of God, those who would be called the way, actually lived and interacted. And one of the ways that they interacted was clearly that their hearts were open to the transformation that God was bringing by the Holy Spirit to every aspect of their lives, that their hearts were soft to being redirected, reoriented, hearts of stone being replaced with hearts of flesh and made aware of the kingdom of God. And how did they foster that? Well, we looked last week at this idea, this reality in 42 and 43 in particular, about the importance of gathering together for the purpose of worship. And really what we see outlined, although I'm sure it didn't look exactly like this, is the early believers coming together and they listened to the apostles' teaching. There was this expectation that the apostles, as they unpacked what Jesus had told them and as they reflected upon the Old Testament and their own understandings, as they then processed that, they would encourage these young believers, these uh, Jewish folks in Jerusalem, about the realities of the kingdom of God and how Jesus was transforming their historic understandings and expectations, the assurances and the challenges of the kingdom of God. And in the midst of that, then we saw, of course, that there is this wonderful reality that the sacraments are present. There's the breaking of the bread and the interesting little grammatical reality that the definite article is before bread in that first reference. And so there's a centrality of the sacraments, the recognition of the Lord's Supper. There is this amazing uh, promise of God's connection that happens through this teaching and the sacraments that builds a kind of fellowship, that worship is something that doesn't just simply happen on our own, although it certainly does, but there is this rhythm of fellowship and coming together as the gathered people of God. I was making fun of the music team this morning as we regularly pray before worship and sometimes I get distracted and I just sort of had a, a, a fit and went, went, went full-born American evangelical. I just said, forget worship, we're not getting together. Just have your own personal individual faith and stop bothering me, which would be handier, right? I mean, I'd sort of be out of a job, but it'd also be less stressful for me. We all just had our individual faiths. But the reality is those individual faiths fit together as a part of the body of Christ. We come together in fellowship to share those realities, to encourage one another in our faith. And then lastly, we talked about the prayers, that, that recognition. And that's part of the reason why I've changed all of the headings back to prayers of. Now we're in prayers of apprenticeship. What does that mean? We are in conversation with God. We're in conversation with Christ our older brother, our master who teaches us what it's like to be like him. We are apprentices learning the work of being like the God who created us, a God who redeems and renews, a God who blesses and is generous, a God who stands for what is right and true in the midst of all circumstances and is wise in the midst of that. And so these prayers, the Psalms, the, the Proverbs, so many places where we see this interaction with God over all emotional tracks, 
all emotional states and a recognition that we are those who engage regularly in communication with God, expecting that we are being heard and that we are being communicated to in wonderful and rich and diverse ways. So we come then to our second open, open hearts and then open hands. And we see in this next section of the text that there is a reality that God's people begin to function in a way that is countercultural and always difficult to qualify. I read a couple of commentaries that were written in the 50s and 60s, and above all, they stressed that this was not communism because it was the day and age in which they were. So any sort of group sharing had a particular social political attachment to it. And I'm sure in Jesus's day, everybody was thinking, oh, they're just like the Essenes. They're going to go live out in Qumran, out in the desert in some commune and separate themselves and share everything. But that's not what the Christians do. We can't be reduced to those sorts of extremes that humans come up with. There's something happening in the community of faith which transcends and breaks all of the molds that human would, humans would create. But let's put the text in front of us. Again, to remind us where we are, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, hear now God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. <coughs> they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to them the number daily of those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are delighted to know that you listen to us. It is sometimes too marvelous for us to imagine. In the midst of this time, we ask that we might in some small way listen to you. And if you can and desire to, that you might use the preaching of your word to communicate that which builds up your people and helps them know again the goodness of who you are and where you would have us go. We pray, Lord Jesus, that anything that is said this morning that is not useful or true to the building up of your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So there are historic marks of the church, right? There's a lot of discussion about this, uh, some which you may be blissfully ignorant of. But there are these ways in which we try and define what the church is. What is a good church? What is the true church? So historically, uh, before the Reformation, there were four marks of the church primarily built off of uh, the initial creeds, the Nicene and Apostles' Creeds, right? And so those are four categories of the opening lines of the Apostles' Creed, uh, the opening lines of the Nicene Creed. We believe in what? Uh, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So one, one way or another, this is one body, even though she may be in many places and divided and stressed in many regards. There's one. We may not be able to see it, but God always sees one. Holy, 
set apart for a purpose. That doesn't mean strictly that, that there's a holiness that makes us unapproachable, but it is a holiness. Again, holiness means set apart for a purpose, distinct from. So the church has a purpose, a purpose, a holy purpose that God would instruct and lead her in. But there is a holiness to it, a set-apartness to the church. Apostolic, founded on the teaching of the apostles, and it is founded on the what Jesus says will be the rock of the church. And then it is Catholic, which is historically understood, of course, defined as universal, which means that not only is it one, but it stretches throughout time and space, and it is not contained in one particular building, location, nationality, race, gender, creed. But it is universal. The Reformation hit, and we emphasized three additional or slash different ways of recognizing what a true church was. And that was a pure teaching of the gospel, right administration of the sacraments, and the application of church discipline. All good things. If you can't see how historically driven those three things are, we'd love to have a Reformation class and teach you about what's going on in Europe at that point. Right, there is pure teaching, all kinds of challenges with what parts of uh, the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church were impacting readings of the gospel, readings of the church. The sacraments, huge description about what happened, uh, disagreements about what happens in baptism and the Lord's Supper, how much power, how many sacraments are there, which, which was also an interesting conversation. And then church discipline, how is it that we hold one another accountable. And it is true to this day that churches where you find less emphasis on the fullness of Scripture, which is what the Reformers were talking about, the whole counsel of God, not just three books, four books, not just the writings of Paul, but the whole counsel, not just the Gospels per se, not just the writings of Paul, but the whole counsel of Scripture. And when we leave those, we find that we're in difficulty. It is hard to be a true church when we start editing out parts of the Bible that we currently find culturally unhelpful and offensive to our sensibilities, which ironically are sensibilities built on the revelation of the character and nature of God brought through 2,000 years of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and the life and teachings of Jesus, which began to drive the culture of death out of the mainstream and into the periphery. That comes from the gospel. But we find to this day that it's sometimes easier to take little parts of the Bible out that we find offensive. Right administration of the sacraments. That recognition of what God is doing. When the sacraments drop off, when we stop recognizing a spiritual and physical reality, when we reduce ourselves to the here and now, with only an understanding of some existential truth that gets dropped in that we occasionally talk about on Sunday mornings, 
with no rhythm of understanding that we live in a spiritual and a physical world. We are not Greek Platonists. We do not believe that spirit is good and matter is bad. We believe that God came to redeem both. That's the whole point of the incarnation. And therefore the sacraments as really and truly things that happen, not magical, but that place where the spiritual and the material again come closest together the way they were always designed to be, so that what happened at that baptism was a real thing, not a memorial, not magical, not something that has anything to do with me. That's why I put the robe back on. Let's remember, anybody examined can fill this robe. You don't need EC to baptize a child. There's nothing special about the person. It is what God does in that moment with his covenant child that matters. And it is a spiritual and a physical reality. God help us if we tell Amelia that it was only a spiritual reality and has no physical implications for her life. She will begin to live in a world torn apart that God is trying to pull back together. So the right administration of the sacraments, the recognition that the Lord's Supper is an actual feeding, you should expect to feel full. One way or another, in your heart and in your soul, when you come to the Lord's Supper, you should expect to feel full. Not magically saved, not something that wears off, and that's where we disagree sometimes with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. There's nothing magical, nothing in a way that I can control, but there is a spiritual reality, and we want to expect a spiritual and a physical feeding in the midst of it. And so, yes, the right administration of the sacraments where we realize and reinforce our dual natures, as spiritual and physical beings and how God is healing that, we want to emphasize that on a regular basis. The church should. Church discipline. It's really difficult. And of course, we find very early on that apparently church discipline was something the Holy Spirit took rather seriously. That we are called to hold one another accountable. It's why we take membership vows. You're giving the people in this room, the brothers and sisters you have, permission to hold you accountable in a formal way. God does everything formally. That's sort of like, so can I talk? Sure, whatever. If you want to talk into my life, that's fine. We love casual relationships because we can pick and choose whether or not we listen to people. The problem is God doesn't do casual relationships. Please show me in Scripture where God just sort of a wink and a nod and we're good. He gets really formal. He says, look, we're going to make commitments to one another because trust me, when at some point I have to speak a hard truth into your life or you have to speak a hard truth into my life, I want our relationship to be informal because then I can ignore you and walk away. And so church discipline is not about the horror and the weight of sometimes coming to the end of a long, drawn-out, challenging interaction with a brother or sister who seems to be running away from the faith and saying to that brother or sister at that point, we agree that at this point your decisions are running away from Jesus and we don't want you to have any illusion that you can embrace that life and that sin so wholeheartedly without repentance and still be a believer. These things are incongruent. We're not saying that God isn't still pursuing you. We're not saying we know where your eternal destination is. What we are saying right now is your life is incongruent with what Jesus says.
and you're unrepentant about it. You're not willing to admit that you're needing Jesus in this area of your life. That is a weighty thing. And yet if we never say those things to each other when they are necessary, we are held accountable for tickling each other's ears and waving as we inevitably drive off of one cliff after another. It's hard to imagine being a church in which there is not that need, that desire, that terrifying and humbling requirement to come along somebody when you are every bit the sinner they are and saying, Christ, I'm concerned about this. And then the weight of that is we're training leaders in the church and elder candidates, the weight of that when one holds an office. They are serious things and they are marks of the church. To abandon any one of those is to abandon the importance of the full-orbed life in Christ. And as much as I've just preached, you're going, but you haven't even gotten to the text yet, which is what introductions are for. You get to preach a lot of stuff without referring to the text. There are different marks of the church in this passage. And as you notice that quote on the front of your worship folder from N.T. Wright, there is a way in which when we ignore these early marks of the body of Christ, as wonderful and as important as all of the things are we've just talked about, we will miss the life, the living reality of it, the context for church discipline, the context for a right understanding of the sacrament, the context for talking about the truths of God and wrestling with those truths when they often challenge our very being. And so what do we find? We find, of course, that there is apostolic teaching. We've already talked about that. We reinforce it. There is a teaching other than our own reflections that there is that historic understanding. Authoritative is the language we use. It's true. There just are interpretations that are better than what I come up with when I wake up first thing in the morning. It doesn't mean you're not intelligent. A common life for those who believe. See, those aren't stressed. I mean, it's, it's, it's referenced in one, in the historic understanding, one church, but that isn't fellowship. That could be just a theological abstraction. We understand there's one church. I have no intention of being a part of a church, but I know there's one church. And that's sometimes what we find in our culture. I know I'm spiritually connected to all Christians. Why do I have to spend time with them? Well, you're going to spend eternity together. Why rush things? And yet the reality is that that common life together is what marks the early church. What do they do? They start living together. What happens? Again, that means regular fellowship and connection. What happens? They start to know each other's needs. And when they start to know each other's needs, then they start to realize, you know what? I have a little extra. And it's going to hurt, but the reality is I'm not hurting as much as they are, so I can sell something and help them out because I know about their need through regular relationship and the ability to be transparent enough to say, I'm in need. I'm hurting. And know that there's no judgment in the context of that. That no one's going to say, well, why don't you just work harder? Now they may say, I'm going to help you. And by the way, you could also work harder. Well, that's where the commitment to one another and pointing towards life and health. But if I'm at the end of myself and I've become ill, that I have just come from a far land, that I need that help and I join the fellowship there is a common life together for those who are believers. It does not fit into any 
economic or political idea that has been written down by various philosophers. It is from God himself. And what that means to me at this moment is very clearly I cannot define it nor create rules for it. What I can say is that there is some clear reality that when you unpack the richness of the Old Testament and its expectation of a people that would live together in a way that would transform the world and now the people of God are doing that in small communities around the world in a way that transforms cultures and always leaves people asking how can you live that common life together in that way? with the generosity and the care. And that leads to the breaking of bread. So it's not just the sacraments on the Lord's Day, but now we see in this text that we move from the definite article to the indefinite article. The breaking of bread becomes now manifested in the way that they fellowship together and share meals together and spend time together. Getting to know one another around the table. And as we've already described, there are the prayers. And in fact, they meet together throughout the week for prayer. They're meeting in the temple courts and they're praying for one another, for their city, for all of the things that one would expect because they're modeled in the Psalms they knew so well, in the words of the prophets that were often written in verse. The four marks of the church in Acts chapter 2 are not different than the four marks that we see in the historic church, nor are they not included in the three marks the Reformation stressed, but they become richer and more organic in Acts chapter 2, the apostolic teaching, the common life of those who believe, the breaking of bread and the prayers. When we live that way, it creates generosity, right? We are generous in spirit, right? So my heart is transformed. I'm learning the apostolic teaching. I'm increasingly understanding what is right. But if I do it alongside of you and I see your weaknesses alongside mine, then that knowledge doesn't fill me with arrogance. Fellowship actually helps work against theological pride. Because now I see how it's applied in your life and I see how I'm not always applying it equally even though I might think that I am. And there's a way in which that intimacy and fellowship allows me to be generous and you to be generous with me as we work through issues, as we follow the great lead of our great older brother, as we are apprentices in it and our hands become open. And I wanted uh, to preach an entire sermon real quickly on the Ten Commandments. Ready? They're all about stealing. All Ten Commandments are about theft. And theft is about closing my hand around something that is not mine. Go through the Ten Commandments. What do we steal first? God's position. Adam and Eve grab the fruit, they close their hands around it, and they take what is God's. He is the only God. His name will be honored and praised. We do not steal from Him, and we use His name rightly, God's position is the first thing we try and steal. And then we steal the honor from God. And not surprisingly then, being those who steal honor from God, we raise children who are likely to steal honor. 
and they steal honor from God, and then they try and steal it from us. And God says, you should really honor your father, and you're, you're, you should really honor, these are my children. I'm going to have a sermon now for you. No, they do a wonderful job. Honor your father and your mother. Don't steal that from your children. Don't steal that from your parents. And then don't steal sexually what is not yours. Don't steal monetarily what is not yours. Don't steal life that is not yours to take. Do not wish you had other people's things. Do not steal truth. Do not steal right knowledge from another who has a right to know. Don't steal. Don't keep your hands closed. But when we live in fellowship and when we live in the common life and the breaking of bread and the prayers underpinned by the apostolic teaching of the good news of the gospel, you will find that you need to steal a lot less. That your hands are less like this and more open. Just as Christ's were for us. No greater image than the generous God than the hands nailed open wide to accept you and I into his presence. No theft, just the gift from an unbelievably generous and amazing God. Closed hands are hands that are afraid, hands that are isolated. We're called to live with open hands. But that does mean an investment in community. Your hands will not become open if you are isolated. If we stay within family groups, if we stay within socioeconomic groups, in any way in which we make the world smaller than God's world, our hands will be closed. And the more we are open to those God has already gathered at CVP, the more able we are to be open to those that God has not yet graced with their presence in this place. The more our hands are open, the more the world sees not fear, but generosity, not theft, but gifts. Freely given, the more we draw one another into safe relationships and others. And so God does begin to add to their number daily. That was kind of their evangelistic plan. They lived together in the generosity of God. They lived out in public, which we'll talk a little bit about next week, about what it means to have open doors. But their lives were clearly, clearly and in ever greater degrees, manifesting hearts that were being transformed. And the outward physical manifestation of that was a community that lived in closer fellowship and generosity. Some practical steps as we close. We're going to uh, work on doing dinners for eight over the course of the fall in, t- in this year. We have people who know each other from work. We have people who know each other from, from different places at CVP. But we really want to encourage and deepen our fellowship by intermingling different groups. Not breaking them up, but intermingling. And so having those times, and there'll be real questions to ask so we can kind of get to know each other with the purpose of deeper knowledge of our life and our history, where we came from. Hopefully not too uncomfortable questions, but certainly ones that would, would give us a little bit more than light dinner conversation. There are going to be summer, summer activities 
different gatherings. I encourage you to take the time to do it. Look, community doesn't happen unless we invest in it. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens by conscious effort. The last thing, of course, is safe families. As we build that team, thank you for those who are already involved. It's going to take a community effort. It's sharing life together. It's fellowship and it's that openness to bring others in who are embracing and living through real challenges. These are practical ways in which we at CVP hope to foster and encourage the fellowship that's already there in ways that stretch throughout the week and also become a part of how we do ministry together as we serve one another and serve Christ and serve this community. God's people took what they learned in worship, began to live a life modeled by worship, and as they did, their hands became open. They were generous. May that be said for us as well in ever greater degrees. There is so much resource in God's church, so much blessing to pour out. May he show us how to do it well and wisely and give us the courage to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word again. Lord, you call us on to greater things, even though sometimes it is unnerving to take those steps, even though it feels at times your weight and your law are heavy upon us, and yet it is the heaviness of real freedom. Our muscles are weak. We ask that you would give us strength and realize that, that you call us to nothing that you won't give us the power and the resources to do. Thank you for what you are already doing. And we look forward to seeing that grow. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers would come forward at this